Well, it was a blessing to be with you all today, and it's a blessing to minister God's Word to you once again. Uh, You're probably asking another question uh, in your minds, why is a young guy preaching on Ecclesiastes? And that was a question I asked myself when I went through it last year, Uh, but it was a blessing for me as I went through it and a blessing for the people of God. Uh, I call it that most depressing book, uh, but it's encouraging in a very depressing sort of way. So uh, remember that as we uh, go through verses 1 through 14 this, uh, this afternoon. Well, let us go to our God for prayer once again. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that uh, in times of perplexity, in times of enigma, in times of vanity, that we have our God we can call upon. We are thankful that you are the sovereign Lord and you are the providential provider of your people. And we are thankful that you do make everything beautiful in its time. Even though those times are difficult for us to grasp, even though those times are hard for us to understand, we are thankful that you are God and we can put our faith in you. Thank you that you are a good God, and we're thankful that you know what is good for us. We are thankful that you've provided everlasting goodness for us in Christ. We are thankful for your love for us that we see manifested in the work of the Son, and we are thankful that we shall have everlasting goodness forever with you in the new heavens and new earth. And so uh, give us the strength that we need. Give us the wisdom that we need as we deal with this fallen world. Help us to make Uh, right decisions based upon your word as we face difficult circumstances in our life. So we pray that you'd uplift your people, encourage your people, and we do pray that you'd be pleased to once again be with us by your spirit. These are difficult things for us to understand, but we're thankful that you do provide for us and you do enlighten our hearts and minds. So please do that again for us this afternoon. And we pray that you be honored and glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the preacher comes to ask the question, what is good for man? What is the best thing for man? What is that makes man's life good? Well, in our modern conception of the good life, whatever feels good, regardless of its moral value, is what the good life perhaps is. People wish to avoid pain at all costs. Well, there are good things that God has given to us in this world that can be used rightly, If they are our chief aim, it leaves us empty and unsatisfied in this world. And the preacher shows that tension throughout the book. He highlights how God gives good things. God gives mirth. God gives blessings. But then those blessings in and of themselves bring vanity and misery and perplexity in this fallen world. Because in themselves, they do not fully satisfy And the reality is the things that are good for us are not always necessarily the things that we enjoy. To use New Testament language, discipline is painful in the moment. And so Solomon is really wrestling. I do believe it is Solomon. I know there uh, ink is spilled on who wrote it. I do believe it is Solomon who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And he wrestles with the question that we see in 6.12. For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? I do believe the meaning and purpose of the book is how Solomon wrestles with the inconsistencies of this fallen world. He's seeking, going on this quest to find the meaning of life. But as he goes on this quest, he discovers the enigmas of life. And so the motto and the question of the book comes in chapter one, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or as some have translated it, enigma of enigmas, all is enigma, things sometimes just don't make sense. So 
What profit is there under the sun? What profit is there for man if all is vanity? Well, in the section prior, he considered riches. He considered the, the, the mirth. He considered plenty. But there's the reality that there is a darkness of riches. There's futility with riches. So if riches does not bring us profit, what then is profitable for man under the sun? So he comes to chapter 7 to answer that question with some better than sayings. And some of those better than sayings square with the book of Proverbs, but some of them are in tension with the book of Proverbs as well. That's why it's important, I think, to read Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together. That is, we see typically in Proverbs, retribution, the just receive what is good, the, right, or the unjust receive what is uh, wicked, they receive curse. But you come to Ecclesiastes and the reality is life is not fair. The reality is sometimes the wicked prosper and sometimes the just do not. And so Ecclesiastes, I think, provides comfort in a world filled with unfairness and tension and sorrow. And the problem that we see, or I guess gleaned from these uh, verses or these, uh, this chapter, is the problem that riches can bring. Riches can bring forgetfulness. Riches can bring frivolity. They're not bad necessarily, but they sometimes take our eyes off of God and take our eyes off of things that last forever. And so the conclusion, at least from the preacher in chapter 7, is that sadness is better than rejoicing. This is still a problem. This is still an issue. Q, or Q, the preacher, Solomon, is wrestling with. But it doesn't change the fact of what he's saying. Sometimes sorrow is better for us. Sometimes it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the house of feasting. And so in Ecclesiastes 7 verses 1 through 14, the pre- preacher answers the questions about what is good for man. And he answers it, I think, primarily in three ways. And these are my three points this afternoon. First of all, we'll see how good sorrow is in verses 1 through 4. Secondly, we'll see how good the end is in verses 5 through 12. Then lastly, we'll see how good God is in verses 13 and 14. Now, I could have had an eight-point sermon because there's a lot of better than sayings, but I didn't want to be tedious and want to bore you with all that. So the three points, how good sorrow is how good the end is, and how good God is. So let's first look at how good sorrow is in verses 1 through 4. Again, it's in the context of God giving good gifts. We do see in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, he talks about joy, he talks about food, he talks about drink, and God is kind to this fallen world to give us food and drink. And that is a blessing that God has given. It doesn't save, but nonetheless, we recognize God's common goodness. But then he also talks about in verse 19 of chapter 5, God must give man the ability to enjoy it. God must give man the ability to enjoy those blessings. The problem is man does not do so. And so there is a vanity when man cannot enjoy those good benefits. Ecclesiastes is founded, or at least behind it, is a robust doctrine of creation. God made this world. God made it good. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there is the fall. But that doesn't change the fact that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And man can enjoy temporal blessings in this world. And it is vanity when we don't. It is vanity when we don't thank the Lord. It is vanity when we cannot enjoy those temporal blessings that God has provided for us. And so if riches don't provide meaning, if riches don't provide 
the answer to what is profitable? Well, perhaps a good name is better. And this is verse 1. A better to have a good name. Verse 1a. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the point seems to be that in the pursuit of wealth, it's better to keep one's good name rather than squander it with the highest priced items. Or perhaps it's better to keep one's good name rather than uh, defraud, rather than bribe. But it's better to have a good name than precious ointment. So if riches don't bring good, if, if, if riches don't bring um, uh, 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 a blessing, if riches are not the meaning of life, well, it's better to have a good name. Now, this does square with Proverbs. We see that in Proverbs 21, verse 1. But it is better to have a good name than to be very wealthy. It's better to have a good name, good reputation uh, in this world rather than to have a lot of things. And so it's better to have a good name. But also it is better, the day of, the, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And we see that in 1b. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now the problem of death emerges again here in this book. It comes up a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it really is the great leveler. We see that even though the wicked might prosper, one day they are going to pass. Even though the righteous suffer, one day that righteousness, or sorry, that suffering is going to end because we are going to pass away. And perhaps there is some connection with death or an oppression in Ecclesiastes 4 that we see again in chapter 7. But in Ecclesiastes 4, it is better to have never been born. The world is filled with so much sorrow, so much vanity, so many things that are perplexing for us. It is, as the preacher says, perhaps better to have never been born. And so it usually is a negative thing. It is the great leveler. But here it is used in an ironically positive sort of way. Perhaps the image and purpose that he's trying to convey to us is usually, typically, the day of birth is one filled with joy and excitement. Usually, a baby has been born, there's excitement that is there, the baby has their whole life ahead of them, sorry I smacked the pulpit there for you, Uh, but they have their whole life ahead of them, Uh, but the day of death is a day that is different. It would be odd when a baby is born, I understand that there can be diagnoses in this fallen world, but generally speaking, when the baby is born, thinking about the day they're going to die. It's excitement, there's happiness, there's anticipation, but the day of death is different. And so it's better the day of death than the day of one's birth. And he goes on to continue this sort of theme or this idea with verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. It's similar to death and birth. And perhaps what he's trying to tell us here is that mourning causes us to think. Mourning stops us and causes us to consider our end. Mourning causes us to stop and consider what is the meaning of life. Nobody wants to be that negative Nelly at a four-year-old's birthday party asking, when is that little one going to pass away? If you think that way, you're a little off and a little weird, and I'm not going to invite you to the next birthday that we have. And nobody at a wedding typically is counting down the days when that couple is going to divorce. Now, I understand there's sadness and sorrow. I get all that sort of stuff. Divorce happens in this world. But you understand the point. Those times of birth, those times of feasting, those times of weddings are times when we're thinking about the blessedness and goodness. We're not always thinking about the difficulties of life. 
So sometimes it is better for us to go to the house of mourning. Because then we consider our end. Isn't that what we sang in Psalm 90? Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. To recognize our finiteness. To recognize that we are not the infinite. To recognize that we are the one we are going to pass away in this world. It teaches us that the things of this world are going to pass away. So it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. And the reason is, as he clearly says, for that is the end of all men. And the living take it to heart. That is the end of all men, and the living take it to heart. In our modern times, for those who are not in Christ, they do not want to think about death. They don't even want to smell death. They don't even want to look at death. But what does the psalmist say, and what does the preacher say? We must consider it, for that is our end. And it causes us to stop and consider eternity where we will be in eternity. And if we are in Christ, there is great comfort. If one is not in Christ, there is great terror of what awaits. And so it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Better is the day of death than the day of one's birth. And then continuing this theme of sorrow, he does say in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for a sad countenance of the heart is made better. He talks about vexation, talks about anger in a negative way in chapter 5, verse 17, with riches. Someone who has this severe evil, what profit has he in all that he does? Uh, He's trying to secure riches, but it only brings evil. And so verse 17, all his days he eats in darkness. All his days he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. So it's not a good thing there. And sorrow is never a good thing, but he's using it once again in a positive sort of way. Sorrow is better than laughter. And the reason is a sad countenance makes the heart better. This does seem to have some tension with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 5.13 says, A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. See, it's important to have that nuance, isn't it? To read the books in tandem, to read them together, to recognize that sometimes sorrow causes us to think about our end. Again, that's the repeated theme. We think about our end. We think about what really matters. We think about the things that shall last. Perhaps it is akin to Hebrews 12 with the discipline. No discipline seems good for a moment uh, or in the moment, but it is a benefit and blessing for us. And so sometimes the difficulties of life are when we are sanctified in our Christian walk, most of the time that comes through times of difficulty and sorrow. You're going to have Pastor Butler here next week. He says often that you're never sanctified uh, on a beach. Most of the time it's through the hardships, it's through sorrow, it's through difficulty. That is when we grow, when we feel that pressure, when we feel that hardship. It weans us from the world and it causes us to grow in the things of God. You certainly see this in Romans. You see this with James and Peter as well uh, in the letters uh, that Peter writes that these things, these difficult things help us. They cause us to grow. They cause us to consider. They cause us to grow in the things of God. It's much like building muscle. There's a certain rep range that you have to be in. If you're within seven to 10 or, or sorry, one to three reps of, of what remains in the tank, then you'll build muscle. If you're not, if it's way too easy, it's just nothing. It's not going to do anything. It has to be within that range with 
three to, to, or one to three reps left in the tank. Anything more, it's probably not going to do much. Yes, movement is good. That's all fine. But the point is we need that pressure. The point is we need that hardship. The point is we need those things in this world. And so sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Sometimes we thought laughter would be the best medicine. But in this case, uh, that is not the case. In this case, it is sorrow. Because our heart is made better. Because our hearts are turned to the things that last forever. And then he says in verse 4, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Again, the wise one, the one who seeks the meaning of life, seeks what is the right way of life, will recognize, and as the preacher does, as he goes on his quest at the beginning, he seeks wisdom, but because of sin in the world, he finds grief. Because of sin in the world, he finds sorrow and sadness. And so the wise one considers the things of God. The wise one grows in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth because the wise one in mourning ponders and discerns what is the way of life. Now, sorrow is hard, but it is good for us because God awakens our attention through that sorrow. Again, we should appreciate the mirth and abundance that God gives as a gift, but it can make us sleepy and forgetful. That's why times of sorrow typically shake us out of our slumbers. Matthew Henry was very helpful in Ecclesiastes, and he says, Sorrow is better than laughter, more agreeable to our present state, where we are daily sinning and suffering ourselves, more or less, and daily seeing the sins and sufferings of others. While we are in a veil of tears, we should conform to the temper of the climate. It is also more for our advantage, for by the sadness that appears in the countenance, the heart is often made better. Note one. That is best for us, which is best for our souls, but which the heart is made better, though it be unpleasing to sense. And two, sadness is often a means of seriousness, and that affliction which is impairing to the health, estate, and family may be improving to the mind, and make such impressions upon that as may alter its temper very much for the better, may make it humble and meek, loose from the world, penitent for sin, and careful of duty." We're not looking for sorrow, but sorrow does find us. And we must remember that sorrow and suffering, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, is but a momentary light affliction. He understands the suffering and sorrow. And 2 Corinthians is all about the tension between suffering and glory, the tension between what he already has and what he does not have yet. And he says, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are temporary are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Sorrow is good for us, and sorrow causes us to think about the things that last forever. So sorrow is good, but so is the end. And so we'll transition to how good the end is in verses 5 through 12. How good the end is, verses 5 through 12. And notice, it's better to hear a rebuke. See, I told you it'd be a long sermon or many, or many points if I did each one. But verse 5, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. 
So continuing these better than sayings, this squares with Proverbs 13, 15, and 17. It's a continuation of what is better and rebuke is better. It's better to hear rebuke and correction than to hear something pleasant with the fools. If it is for our good, if it directs our attention to God, it's better to hear a difficult thing rather than to be left uh, in our ways. And so again, this is vanity. This is enigma. This is perplexing. This is difficult for us because, as we'd expect, laughter seems like the best medicine sometimes. Laughter seems to be good for our souls. And I'm not against laughing and giggling and all those sorts of things. But it is better to hear rebuke than the song of a fool. And the songs of a fool, they don't sound nice. They might think it sounds nice, but it sounds like the crackling of thorns under pots. Not the nicest sound all the time, is it? They might sound nice, they might look good, they might talk in a nice way, but in reality it is like that crackling of thorns under the pot. So is the laughter of the fool. So it is better to hear rebuke. And even too, laughter and enjoyment are good gifts from God, but if you never hear rebuke and correction, that is a problem. That's why there's balance, right, with children when you're raising children. We correct them, we guide them, but we still have to have fun with them. We still have to show that we love them and show our affection towards them. So it is better to hear rebuke. But also, thankfully, it is better when a thing ends. And I think we see this in verses 7 through 10. It is better when a thing ends. And so the problem we see in verse 7 is the problem of oppression, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. I love Solomon, even though he's the wisest man, he is still a realist. (laughs) Even though Solomon was the wisest man, he still has his issues. And if Solomon had his issues, then thankfully, uh, you know, we are in good company if if we have ours as well. If we struggle and we wrestle with the things of this world. And sometimes even the best of men, Even the wisest of men can be broken by oppression, can't they? Even the wisest and best of men can be lured by bribes. Even the best of men, that's why it's best for us never to say, we would never do such a thing. Certainly in in the context of perhaps persecution and perhaps oppression, I mean, that's what oppression is, the uh, 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 pain pain that comes from someone else, man hurting other man, man holding down other man, it is a terrible thing to endure for the people of God. And sometimes we might say, I know I've thought this too, Lord, I would never, you know, I would never do such a thing. I would never renounce you. I would never. What did Peter do, dear brethren? (laughs) Peter renounced the Lord, didn't he? Now, thankfully, the Lord is gracious and renouncing is not a, the, the unpardonable sin. There is mercy and forgiveness. And if you read a lot of history, there are many times that, True people of God, in the face of oppression, recant on certain things. Because we don't know what it's like to be uh, uh, beaten. We don't know what it's like to have certain torture done to us. And when you read certain men, I think of one man named Harlan Popoff. He was a, a preacher, not a domination we would necessarily like, but he still uh, went through a lot of pain and sorrow and suffering in Bulgaria under the Soviet Union. And they knew how to torture. You know what they did? It wasn't just physical, it was psychological. At night, when the men were tired, when the men needed to sleep, you know what they did? They brought them into a room that was white, turned the light on, and said, stare at the wall. 
And every time they fell asleep, smack. Every time they fell asleep, smack. They had to stay awake. They were not just breaking them physically. They were breaking them mentally. And it came to the point where Harlan did not necessarily recant the faith, but he agreed to all the charges. Yep, I am a conspiracy theorist, essentially. Yep, I'm against the God. He, they all agreed because of the hardship that they endured. There is difficulty in life. Surely oppression destroys a, my, a wise man's reason. There is oppression and sadness in this world. And we pray that if those times come, that we would, by the grace of God, stand in those times. We can only stand by the grace of God, and we ought to pray uh, in those moments. And certainly there are many other examples of this in history and what the people of God go through now around the world, as you all know very, very well. And so what is this response then in the face of oppression? Well, I think there are four things that the preacher suggests when it comes to our response. The first is it's going to end. Verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Oppression is going to end. Sorrow and sadness is going to come to an end. And so the blessed thing is, even though one goes through it now, all those things that they go through shall come to an end. It shall pass. It, at the end of a thing is better than its beginning, especially in a world filled with sorrow and sadness and oppression. And so there's going to be an end. The second thing is, in the face of oppression, notice God's people must be patient. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter equates worrying with pride, doesn't he? Do you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your burdens upon him? He equates it. How do we submit to God? How do we humble ourselves? By casting all our burdens upon God most high. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp the providence of God. It's hard for us to understand why certain things are going on. Worry, we thankfully can go to God when we worry, but nonetheless worry and anxiety is a form of pride. We're not trusting in the goodness of God, trusting in the wisdom of God when it comes to the life in which we live. So patience is better. It's better not to grumble and complain about one's circumstances. And when we do, it is pride, dear brethren. I'm a grade A complainer. Canadians are not as nice as you think, especially Vancouverites. We're actually very cold and distant, and we're not as nice as some of the other people, but we can be very cold. We can be grumblers and complainers. It's raining all the time. You guys get all, you understand that, I think, up here. But we can be that sort of person. We're always glass half empty sometimes kind of people. And so what do we what do we do under oppression? We must bear it. We must be patient. We must endure it. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So the end's going to come and as we wait we must endure. And then the third thing we must do in light of oppression and this one is a tough one. <laughs> Avoid anger. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Vexation, sorrow can be good, but anger, if we hasten to it, if we grow hot with it, it rests in the bosom of fools. When we grow angry, we don't think. When we grow angry, we sin. When we grow angry, we can bring more trouble upon us than is necessary. And so it's best for us to avoid anger. Anger against the one who's oppressing us. That, that's a tough one. That is a difficult one, dear brethren. That's a hard thing to, 
to wrestle with, especially when there is oppression. I'm amazed by some of the people who who are very kind and gracious and forgiving to their oppressors. I don't think I'd be that way. That's why God is, uh, we need God to work in us and remind us and rebuke us. And at least for me, to help me be more gracious and kind in those moments. And so we must avoid anger. So it's going to end. We need to be patient. And then we need to avoid anger. And then the fourth thing when it comes to our response to oppression, notice, do not inquire into the past. He says, do not say, verse 10, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this thing. Some people have golden age syndrome, don't they? If only I lived in this age, if only I lived in this country, if only I lived this place. I have to say, dear brethren, I grumbled a lot in California, okay, when I lived there for seminary. I'm Canadian, and there are differences between Americans and Canadians. We don't like to recognize that, but it is just the truth. And I longed to be home, and I whined and grumbled and complained. Before I went to seminary, I worked as a landscaper. You know what I whined about? The rain and the cold and the snow. And I got to California, you know what I whined about? The sun all the time. And so it made me appreciate the seasons all the more. God worked in me even just in my time in seminary. But sometimes we can have this grass is always greener approach. If I'm in California, won't that be better? If I'm in Canada, won't that be better? We shouldn't have both the you know, grass is greener syndrome and the golden age syndrome. I think we sometimes do the golden age syndrome with the Puritan era. Wouldn't that be wonderful to learn under the Puritans and be with them and all that learning. And it would be wonderful, right? But there was a lot of controversy there as well. There was a lot of oppression. And the one thing that we must recognize is the problem of hygiene. We love running water. We love our modern amenities more than we would like. And what, they bathed once a year or something like that during that time. So maybe it wouldn't be as great uh, as we think it would be. And that's why I think Ecclesiastes kind of puts things into perspective. He's done that with chapter three with that, the, 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 the poem of time. We cannot find out the end from the beginning. Or chapter one, what has been has already been. There is nothing new under the sun. And so we're not to inquire in the past. If only this, if only that, if only I lived in that period. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this thing. And so thankfully the end truly is better because the sadness and sorrow and oppression that man deals with under the sun shall end. But he gives us good um, instruction as far as how we respond with that. And then he says in verses 11 and 12, it is better to have wisdom. It's better to pursue the things of God, better to pursue what God has given. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. So wisdom can be, bring grief, but wisdom in this fallen world is a blessing that we ought to use. It is as defense as money is. We only have so much time even that wisdom can offer, but nonetheless, wisdom is still a good thing for us. And I think one thing we can take away from these verses, certainly that the end is coming, but also how sorrow cultivates wisdom in us. Oppression, pain, and sorrow, again, is never something one pursues, but it is how God cultivates wisdom in his people. 
Again, he teaches us to fear. He teaches us to consider the way of life. He teaches us and weans us from this world. And thankfully, we can call upon him and recognize and be affirmed that this world is sorrowful and, and filled with vanity. But yet we can go to our God who helps us look to the things of heaven, that one day this world will end. One day our sorrow shall be no more. Bridges says, This is not therefore the sentiment of a sour misanthrope. It is that of one who looks beyond the momentary ebullition, this pouring out of the sorrow, to the afterabounding and largely compensating results. What if there need be for the present heaviness? Maybe there's a need be for the present heaviness, and it teaches us that one day it shall end. So sorrow is good. The end is good. But let's then look thoroughly and finally about how God is good, how good God is in verses 13 and 14. And notice in verse 13, we see God's crooked path. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? How unable we are to change the decree and providence of God. God has directed it, God has ordained it, and God has brought it to pass. This was a problem in 6 verses 10 and 11. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. (laughs) And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. We cannot contend with God. We cannot change the things that God has ordained. Who is mightier than he? Since there are many things that increase in vanity, how is man the better? And so consider the ways of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This language of crooked comes up at the beginning of the book as the preacher goes on his quest. He seeks wisdom, but he finds grief. And he says, see, uh, and he says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. But now we come to verses 13 and 14, and we see who is the one who has ordained it. Not that God is the author of sin, but he has decreed all things that shall and have come to pass. That's why we have language. That's why in that poem of time, we see that all those things are, 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 are what God has done. Things that are a blessing and things that are, we could say, crooked. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain, a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to throw away. A time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And then we come to verse 11 of chapter 3, after he talks about the prophet. What prophet is there for the worker in all that he labors? I have seen the God-given task, but verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. God has a reason. God has a purpose for all the things that come to pass, even the crooked things that we recognize and view in this world. God has a purpose and reason for all the sadness and sorrow that God's people might endure. Henry once again says, Who can change the nature of things from what is settled by the God of nature? If he speak trouble, who can make peace? And if he hedge up the way with thorns, who can get forward? If desolating judgments go forth with commission, who can put a stop to them? Since therefore we cannot mend God's work, we ought to make 
the best of it. He refers to Romans 8 and Genesis 50. And do pagans have that same assurance? You probably know Genesis 50 and Romans 8. God works all things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Or as Joseph said in Genesis 50, what man means for evil, God means for good. And so God even directs the crooked ways. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? He is the sovereign Lord over all things, and he's directing all things to the end in which he has ordained them to go. So consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And then he goes on to further apply this in verse 14 with the appointed days God gives to his people. And he gives us good application. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of blessing, thank the Lord. It's akin to James 5, right? When you're, when you're cheerful, what do you do? You sing songs. We sing songs to the Lord God Most High. When God gives you good things, we praise his name for what he has provided. So in the day of prosperity, be happy. Here's what the Lord has provided. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. That's why it's important to have that theological perspective. Even though the preacher is going on this quest He does so with the understanding that he has a covenant God that he calls upon. And he recognizes that it is this covenant God who directs all things. And so again, mirth is not bad. Blessings are not bad. But when we have good things, we respond with joy and thanksgiving. And remember that theological perspective that God has given it to us. But there's also the day of adversity. God appoints this day as well. This is kind of the harder part, right? The hard part for people when it comes to this, God has ordained all things and God works through these means even to accomplish his purposes. God has appointed the hardships. God has appointed the sorrows. God has appointed the difficulties. They come from him. And the point of it all is to teach us to what? To fear God. That's the whole point of the book, isn't it? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity, driving to the point where he says in chapter 12, fear God and keep his commandments. That's your lot in life. And we see precursors to that. We see in chapter five, fear God. When you walk into the house of the Lord, fear God. Or even in three, after that poem of time, and after he explains it and explains the time God has given, he does say, talking about the providence of God in verses 14 and 15 of chapter three, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. It's so that we recognize that he is God and we are man. We recognize he is the creator, we are the created. And for the redeemed, he is the redeemer and we are the redeemed. The point is that we fear God and put our faith and trust in him. The point is we realize how truly insignificant we truly are. We can find out nothing. We don't know what tomorrow brings. This is akin to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow, for today has its troubles. And throughout this book, how often the preacher says, you can't find out the the works of God from the beginning to the end. And later on in the book, later on he talks about working hard. I think he's talking about in chapter 11, I think he's talking about investing. There's risk with investing. There's the risk of diligence. You might not receive your return. And so he does say in verse 6, 
In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We really don't know what the future brings as far as our lives go. We know where we're going to be. We know that future, but we don't really know what's going to happen. A lot of people like to speculate, right? Especially politically. We all have inklings. We all, th- uh, we all have um, thoughts about where we think things are going. But let's just be honest. We have no idea. We have no idea how things are going to unfold. We have no idea what's going to come to pass. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think that ought to be a comforting thing for the people of God. (laughs) Worry about today. God is in control. God is over all things. God appoints the days that are prosperous and God appoints the days that are crooked. And this is all meant to be comforting for us, isn't it? It's all meant to remind us and help us to find our comfort in our God who governs all things and upholds all things and especially for his people. It doesn't change the fact that we're going to go through sickness and sorrow. It doesn't change the fact that there's sin and misery in this world. But it does help explain it, doesn't it? And it does give us some comfort. I think sometimes we just need an explanation for why things are perplexing. Why things are difficult? Well, one is sin. That's the overarching thing. And the other thing is God is in control and moving all things for his purposes, even prosperity and adversity. It's meant to be comforting. It's meant to be comforting that God is in control of all things and man can find out nothing that will come after him. There's also another comforting thing as well is that there's going to be an end. All our suffering is going to end. All our suffering is going to be no more the suffering of God's people, whether we die or whether it's the end of the world, whatever comes first. Death is a very sad thing for us to deal with, but we must remember as we sang, um, I think it was the third hymn, that death is just a passage into eternity, isn't it? It's just a passageway for the people of God into eternity. It's a passageway for all into eternity. If one is in Christ, it's eternal bliss. If one is not in Christ, it is eternal torment. We ought to be comforted that there's going to be an end. Or to put it in a more positive way, we have hope. To put it in a New Testament way, we have hope. And we have hope in Jesus Christ. How often the New Testament speaks about this hope. Speaks about the Christ in his finished work. Speaks about the appointed times of Christ. Christ came. He was born of a woman. Born under the law in the fullness of the times. And just as he has come one time, he shall come again. Just as he's conquered sin and death and he's been resurrected from the dead, he's ascended into heaven. And as he's ascended into heaven, so he too, he shall come out of heaven. This is why I think 1 Peter is a very comforting book. I'd like to preach it in the future. I haven't done that uh, yet. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is where we will, we will close. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ has purchased for us. Christ has won the battle and our hope is in him. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, uh, whom having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end is coming, and the people of God have hope that Christ shall come again. He's already come. There's the, there was his appointed dying. There was his appointed resurrection. And there is his appointed return as well to usher in the new heavens and new earth. And thankfully, what is good for us, what is good for God's people, comes from a good God. Let us remember that, dear brethren, and let us, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your guidance. We are thankful for your providence, and we are thankful uh, how you do give us good things in this world. Thank you for mirth. Thank you for blessing. Thank you for abundance. And even thank you uh, for uh, meager things as well, for all we have is a gift from you. And help us to remember that and help us to praise your name and honor you and be cheerful when things are good. But help us to pray to you when we are suffering. Help us to come before you. Help us to recognize that you are God. Help us to see that what man means for evil, even what we mean for evil, you do mean for good for your people. And so we are thankful that there are explanations for why the world is the way it is. And we are thankful that you are a God who is sovereign over all things in this world. And we can find our comfort and strength in you. So may we rest in your providence. May we rest in the promises that you've made. May we rest in the outworking of your decrees. And we are thankful for the assurance that Christ shall come again. Thank you for comforting your people. Thank you for giving strength to your people. Help us to see how good you are. And we pray that you'd help us to honor and glorify you in all that we do. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.